You are listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast. Forge Leadership Network mentors, trains, and connects young conservatives ages 18 to 25, equipping them to lead in politics, culture, and business. For more information or to get involved with Forge, visit forgeleadership.org. How many of you have heard of William Wilberforce? Okay. So, William Wilberforce was was a member of British Parliament at the end of the 18th and the start of the 19th centuries. Okay, so think around the time of the American Revolution, then the French Revolution, and, 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 and right around the turn of that century, that next century. Wilberforce is a young orator um, in Britain. He's basically the, uh, he's basically, he, he, would, he would have belonged to a different party, but he would have basically been the, uh, the hotshot, kind of the AOC of the British Empire when he was about 25. He and uh, 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 his best friend in politics named William Pitt, uh, William Pitt the Younger, his dad, uh, was, was uh, also in Parliament. Um, William Pitt, Wilberforce's friend, there are these kind of two um, upstart hotshots in, in the British um, kind of politic, um, and they both um, are basically the hotshots of, of the British Empire. So they're, they're in their early 20s, they're both elected to Parliament. Uh, Wilberforce, they say, is one of the greatest orators of the century, right? Not just the decade, but the century, has this incredible gift and this incredible charisma, and is, and is kind of taking the House of Commons. And, 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 and by storm, if it will. He's also living a very um, kind of playboy lifestyle uh, at the time, right? Kind of living it up in London's high society. Uh, you know, England is going through at that point. You know, at that point in time, it's the Enlightenment. England is 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 you know historically, you know, Christian and kind of heritage and tradition, but at that at that point is not really. Um, you know, living it out, and to be a, and to be considered a, 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 a like really passionate Christian at that time is considered embarrassing. It's kind of when you start hearing the term fundamentalist and used in a negative connotation. Wilberforce finds this out because when he's ten years old, his parents send him up country to to live with his aunt and uncle, um, kind of on their summer home on the on the water. And his aunt and uncle, though they but they bring him back after about a couple months because his aunt and uncle are what would be considered evangelical Christians. And the parents haven't really realized this. And then they realize this because Wilberforce is hosting all these people like George Whitfield, the famous um, preacher uh, during the Great Awakening, and others like John Newton. Um, anyway, so they, they bring him home because this is embarrassing to a family of high standing in London society to have relatives who are like passionately believing in a personal relationship with God as opposed to just kind of the clockwork universe of, of deism at the time. Well, so Wilberforce has kind of a mixed foundation at that point, but when he's in his mid-20s and he's already in Parliament, he has this very powerful kind of encounter with God and conversion to Christianity. Well, one of the only Christians Wilberforce knows in London happens to be this, uh, at this, at this um, kind of uh, monastic uh, life, a pastoral role, um, a man of the cloth named John Newton. John Newton... Uh, you would know him because he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, which is perhaps the most famous hymn in the English language, right? So, and, and is what everybody aspires to have played um, in back, by bagpipes at your funeral, right? Um, so, uh, I'm Polish and Italian, and I still want the bagpipes of Amazing Grace. Um, look, so, so Newton, in his former life, had actually been a slave ship captain. 
have actually been a slave ship captain. This would be, you know, the modern day human trafficker, you know, turned into, you know, missionary, right? This, this would be a, a massive kind of radical conversion. This is John Newton's life. John Newton ends up uh, converting Christianity, leaving the slave trade, um, obviously, and then, and, then, and then becomes a pastor, writes hymns, preaches, takes care of the... But Wilberforce goes to him thinking, okay, I become a religious person, and religious people step out of government and out of society and go into religious life. This is his assumption that what he has to do. Well, he goes to Newton, and Newton tells him, basically, he does not applaud the decision. Newton actually yells at him and says, you know, you have been given this calling, you've been given these skills, and you've been given these convictions and these causes that you're supposed to champion in Parliament. And if you leave this calling to enter a religious life, you will deserve no better term than a deserter. And Wilberforce has taken aback. But right then, Newton has given him really this kind of theology of vocation, right? And so the question that Wilberforce was struggling with then is, is kind of illustrates our first point here, which is um, should you, as a young person of faith, engage in politics? Or can you, in good conscience, engage in politics? Or politics right? Because you know, we're in a city, we, we're gonna, you're going to hear from people who have, who have experienced um, some real moral pressures, right? Some real moral pressures, uh, pressures to compromise, not just in a diplomatic or, or political way, but in terms of it, their, their, their integrity, uh, their character, these things. So, Wilberforce, and, or the question I posed to you today of, of, of should you enter politics, there have been some you know, people of religious faith who have said, no, you know, should have nothing to do with that because it'll cause, you know, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an insufficient answer, right? And it's an answer that thankfully, for, for us and thankfully for history and thankfully for those who were enslaved for centuries in the Atlantic slave trade thankfully Newton rebukes that answer in Wilberforce's life um, and, and, and reminds him that there need to be that God calls men and women into all aspects of society into all career fields into all jobs uh, to pursue his glory and the good of their fellow man and woman right so the first thing is yes you can absolutely uh, you can absolutely engage in politics um, and, and the, the things nearby uh, politics, right? It would be silly to think that, um, and you're here, so you, you believe this, but just to reiterate, it would be silly to think that, okay, wait a second, there's an arena of life rife with temptation, whether it's Wall Street or Washington, D.C. or whatever, and okay, all the people with strong sense of character, morality, whatever, should, should vacate that arena. Well, what's going to happen to that arena? Like, is it going to get better? No. So it's a... It's a so, but the second thing, the second principle, so why should you engage? What should, if, if you know you can engage, what should your motivation be? That second principle is what, what should your motivation be in engaging, right? And, and oftentimes people think that conservatives engage because they want to force their beliefs on everybody else, right? Which begs the question that like people don't get into politics to try to persuade you of their ideas. Everybody does of all different backgrounds. But... It's not, that's not the reason, or if it is, I don't think that's a good reason for people. It's, it's not that you need everybody to ascribe to your worldview. It's that you desire for our laws to reflect what is true and good and allows human beings, men, women, and children to do better, to flourish, right? So we know that bad laws lead to suffering, right? Look at Venezuela, right? Bad laws lead to suffering. 
and the people in that society suffer as a result of bad laws. Laws that correspond with what is true and, and real um, related to human nature and related to society and how we interact with each other help people flourish and do better, right? So our, our, our real, especially as a Christian, my, my desire to engage the why behind engagement is really love of, should really be love of neighbor, right? So loving your neighbor can oftentimes mean loving your next door neighbor. Should, it should always mean loving your next door neighbor, helping your elderly neighbor with the groceries, looking out for your neighbor when they're out of town They make sure nobody messes with their, you know, property, all these things. This doesn't, what I'm about to say doesn't exclude those things. But we also live in a country in a time where we're able to affect the laws and community and of our, of our structure. Unlike the majority, vast majority of people throughout human civilization, we can actually affect the laws and things in our culture. So why would we not also view those macro changes as an ability to love our community, right? So, so um, Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, in the, in the, um, in the Hebrew Bible, in, the, in, the, in the, uh, the Christian Old Testament, you see that God tells the Jewish people during their exile to Babylon, he tells them, seek the welfare of the city in which I have placed you. Right? He's telling them, seek the good of where, like, right? Seek to be a, 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 seek the good of your neighbor. Seek the good of the city in which I placed you. Right? So I think it's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. It's a simple extension of loving your neighbor. Right? Because we know that when uh, laws reflect what is good and true and right, people flourish. And when laws don't reflect that, when laws are corrupt, people suffer. Right? And we're for human flourishing, not human suffering, right? All right, good. Establish that. Now, the, the, one of the, one of the uh, follow-up points, and, and this is really what Wilberforce is after, right? Wilberforce sees the life of, he sees England at the time and says, wait a second, this is not uh, who we should be as a, as a people. So Wilberforce um, not only abolishes the slave trade, which is, is, is for good reason, his, his most uh, notorious accomplishment, but he also leads what he calls the Reformation of Manners. So at the time, 30, uh, it's a funny term that's kind of outdated, it's kind of Victorian, you know, or, or prior to that term um, in English parlance, but he calls it the Reformation of Manners. But what it is is really like a, uh, he really, um, he really changes kind of London society and him and, him and friends and, and, and others, because at the time, 30 percent 30% of women over the age of 13 in London were prostitutes. 30%. Not talking about 3%, 30 with a zero, right? Um, there was every, every weekend, there were, there were animal fights in the streets, just in the town square. When they talk about bulldogs, right? And that was because of bull baiting and all. This is happening in like 1770s London, okay? There, and look, now we talk about conservatives and liberals in America and in, right down the street in Capitol Hill dis disagreeing about what... Um, how much tax money versus how much private philanthropy versus non-governmental organizations. What's the right approach to poverty, right? Who, who does the best in helping alleviate poverty? How do we best combat poverty, right? There are different approaches. There are different convictions about that. But we all have this, we all have this conviction that it should be addressed. There was no such um, assumption in, in England. People are literally dying in sewers. So, they, they start, so Wilberforce and a group of friends that they call the Clapham Circle because they all, they all intentionally live in this neighborhood in London called Clapham so that they can work together. They're in different industries. Some are nurses. You know, Wilberforce is a member of parliament. Others are different areas. And they actually, um, they actually 
live life intentionally together and try to go about changing London and, and changing the British Empire. So, anyway, the third, the third point is just a reminder from Joseph Backholm's talk to you at the Ford Summit in July, which is that how should you view, in, in the question of how should you view yourself um, when entering the fray, um, I would say that your, your, the, the, the healthiest outlook for your role is, is that of an ambassador, right? Because the, the role of an ambassador does not, you guys remember this from Joseph's talk a little bit about, he, he said that, you know, we're incredibly thankful for soldiers, um, veterans like Jeremiah who have, who have served in, that, in battle. But if you view yourself in politics as a soldier, you're going to probably get way too hung up on, on each uh, momentary engagement, wins and losses, surrendering principles, and, and viewing it as all is lost if and when you lose, right? But that, that, that for politics, an ambassador is a better kind of mindset because no matter what happens, no matter what culture you inherit in each given uh, political engagement, uh, your job remains the same, which is to represent the principles or, or the kingdom if you will, that you, uh, that you represent. And so if you're a Christian, you believe that you're a citizen in two kingdoms right now, right? The, the one in eternity and then the one here in the United States and that your uh, eternal calling uh, remains the same. And so that because of that, in light of that, you can face setbacks and you can see good bills defeated or regrettably not be able, or sometimes not be able, despite laying it all on the field, not being able to stop that bad bill. And you can maintain the perspective to get back up off the mat and go at it again, right? And when our culture may look a little bit different, when it might become more of a hostile culture to the things that you believe, well, the job of an ambassador in a hostile country versus a super friendly ally, the job description is the same. The conversation's a little bit more delicate and all these things. I used to give this talk and I used to say, well, the U.S. ambassador to Iran has a harder job than the U.S. ambassador to Canada. This would be true, except I, I don't think we have an ambassador to Iran. To which point, when the student said that, I said, see, my point. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, the, fourth, the fourth thing, and in, look, there's, there's scriptural backing for what I just said, in case you thought I made it up, right? So um, <laughs> the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, make God making his appeal through us, right? We implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God, right? So... Um, the, the other thing that that inherently, I think Joseph touched on, that that inherently um, kind of convicts us about is that, and this leads our, our, to our fourth principle, is that people, um, people are not, it'll lead to the next principle, people are not the enemy, right? The, the, ultimately, we, we, are, are, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, as scripture says, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers, <laughs> over this present darkness, right? So it says, take up the full armor of God, right? But, but basically, remembering um, that um, your political opponent or your cultural opponent uh, is not your ultimate enemy, right? That they ultimately are your neighbor. They might have a very different conception of what is good, and that matters, right? Because their ideas might lead to great harm, and you want to stop those ideas, right? Uh, they may have the greatest motives in the world, but motives don't you know, determine results and all that. But it does give you an understanding of who they are as an image bearer of God, Right, and the fact that okay, that's my neighbor Bob, not a godless socialist. No, that's my neighbor, you know, Joanne, not a right wing bigot. Like our kids play little league together. You know, they don't. They're they're not trying to usher in the apocalypse. Right, they're my neighbor, and I have very different convictions than them. I don't want to see their candidates win. I don't want to see their lobbying efforts succeed. However, I can treat them 
with uh, the dignity and, like truly, and not saying in a patronizing way, but actually believe um, that they are an image bearer of God, they're my neighbor, and that we have very different conceptions of the good, which I'm going to contend with them for, uh, but be able to respect them in the, in the meantime. So the, the, the fourth point is, are you in search of truth or political victory? And Joseph touched on this as well, but he reminded you this summer that um, this age-old question of what is truth uh, still, still uh, rings true, uh, which is that, um, which is that if you're pursuing political victory as your ultimate good, uh, then you're going to be tempted to compromise uh, your integrity or your characters or the means by which you're pursuing this um, at various junctures. Political victory is great. Victory is good. Winning is awesome. I don't like to lose, right? Like we realized this when I... I, my wife is not nearly as competitive as me, and so she, she played like a board game with my family. She's like, "Oh my gosh, this is like, this is like, uh, this is nerve wracking." Like, I'm like, "What do you mean?" She's like, "You guys are like going at it, and it's like Monopoly." I'm like, "Well, I mean, play to win, you know." <laughs> She's like, it's Monopoly. Uh, anyway, winning is great. Winning matters, but it's not ultimate, right? So, so maintaining that true north and that compass. Maintaining that compass is going to be very important, right? So winning is good. Pursue winning, but not at the cost of not at the cost of truth or uh, the cost of um, the principles that are that are why you're in the fight from the from the start, right? So keep your true north, um, and 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 also um, pursue what is true, even when it's unpopular or even when it might get you mocked, right? So do it in a way that's winsome that's articulate, that's persuasive, but realize that um, sometimes you can make the most persuasive argument, and if people aren't wanting to hear it, um, you might uh, culturally not be popular in that instance or in, in, the, in the broader thing, right? So uh, Noah wasn't on the wrong side of history, he was just uh, on the wrong side of public opinion, right? It's a funny one. <laughs> All right, so the fifth point, connects to what I was saying earlier about image bearers and treating people that is, that is figure out what you believe and how to communicate it well and graciously. So first Peter three, chapter three, verse 15 says, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord is holy, being prepared to make it always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So right there is, is basically fear God, don't fear man. Right, so don't fear man. Don't 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 live for the approval of others. Um, stand by your convictions. Have the courage to speak truth. The next verse, the same time. The next verse, verse sixteen says, "Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame." So, that's really good, right? Always be prepared to have a defense for the hope that you have, right? Be, be prepared to to contend um, for what is true. At the same time, next verse, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when somebody reviles you, they'll be put to shame, right? So you've heard that, you've heard the cliche that people won't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? And it's a cliche, but it's a cliche because cliches are like, you know, common truisms, right? So it, some of you have some of you have realized this already in this point in life, um, but it's right. It, it later in scripture it says, "Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, 
able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So this is pretty much summarized, this fifth point of know what you believe and communicate it well and graciously. This fifth point can basically be summarized by don't be a jerk. Right? So I know that, you know, at least a couple years ago, the word of the day was uh, savage, you know, on Twitter or owning the libs or whatever the, whatever people do um, on, on, on Twitter. But um, that's not how to win friends and influence people. I don't know that many people who have come to be persuaded by an argument by first being mocked publicly, right? So it's, it's one thing to be witty and clever and, you know, um, and that. But it's another thing to, uh, it's another thing to, like, see your ultimate success and glory in just basically being a, uh, a, a keyboard shock jock, you know, warrior, right? So let's aspire to greater things than this. I say this because our, our, our the conservative movement and the center-right movement in this country, there is a, given the medium of the day and Twitter and all this, there is a, there is a bit of a and kind of returning fire with fire mentality and there's a place for witty and you know wisdom and, 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 and clever quips and all that, of course. Um, it's not to say you can't be clever or witty or you know, think on your feet quickly. It's another thing to think you should aspire to uh, have a more constructive trajectory than just to uh, you know, win ratios on Twitter or something like that, right? So, so aspire to, um, to, to more than that. But in the context of wanting to uh, uh, treat people well, uh, despite the fact that you might contend with them across the aisle uh, or even across the internet very regularly. The sixth point, or the sixth principle, principle is, is, is really um, a hard one to talk about um, because it's not a fun subject. Nobody likes to talk about this subject. Um, it's, about, it's about temptation. Basically, the point is, the sixth one is, is to really flee temptation um, and to really... Uh, kind of take care of your house. It's, it's really to deal with, uh, deal with the encumbering sins in your life. Um, you know, as Christians, we would use the term sins. Um, others, I, I spoke to a public high school about this. I said, you know, moral failings. But everybody understands what you're talking about when you talk about um, the things that you struggle with morally, the things that you're tempted to, whether it's taking shortcuts, whether it's lust, whether it's pride, whether it's, uh, you know, outbursts of anger, whatever it is, we all have things that we struggle with and that we wrestle with. Do you think that when you enter public life, those temptations are going to be lessened or heightened? Why? Yeah, there's more pressure, right? The, 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 I'm sure there's a physics analogy here with, you know, when there's pressure, the temperature rises and all these things. But yes, of course, when there's money and power and opportunity and all these things, people are going to be tempted even more uh, than they are otherwise. So we would be foolish to think that the things we struggle with are going to get easier when we enter um, public life, right? Justin and I, um, our next speaker, uh, Paul, we've had friends, we've had mutual friends, we've had other friends throughout our careers and stuff. Even, even at the young age of Justin and I, I know we're 30, I think we're not young, but look, we've had friends who have ruined their marriages, who have ruined their careers, who have ruined their family's name um, because they thought that they could live two lies, or they thought that this thing that just didn't seem like a big deal would never uh, rise to the surface. And, and sadly, um, that's not the case. So deal with it now, deal with it swiftly, right? That's not saying you have to wait till you're morally perfect 
to engage in politics. None of us would ever engage in politics. But it is to say that you know if you're habitually struggling with something, you need uh, to seek the support, seek the repentance, forgiveness, and seek the growth that comes before entering the public limelight, right? Um, you want to... Winston Churchill, um, The Darkest Hour. Didn't you see The Darkest Hour last year? Great, right? Gary... Oh, if he went to he went to Hillsdale, right, to like do the start of it, which was awesome. I'm sure that probably got him booed at the Golden Globes or whatever. <laughs> that was great last night, though. The Ricky Gervais stuff, man, that was funny. Did you see that yet? He called him out, man. Um, so, but here's the thing: um, Winston Churchill, and he really did say this, but in the movie, there's this famous scene where obviously his kind of cabinet is still trying to. There's still members of it who are trying to convince him that there's wisdom and maybe suing for peace with Germany. Nazi Germany and Hitler and trying to see if Hitler will kind of let just make, let them make a treaty and kind of keep the British Empire and basically let Europe go asunder because it already kind of has at that point right and Churchill gets really mad like he does and yells at them eventually and says this is not the time for that where the no we have to fight and he basically says you cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth basically saying that the time for you know, compromising, you know, delicately with this thing is not in the heat of uh, the passion, the heat of the moment. So when the pressure's on and all of these things, you will have wanted to have purposed in your heart, surrounded yourself with the accountability and friendships, which is one of the main purposes of Forge, if you've, um, you know, if, if, if you figure this out, and the mentors who can help you walk through those fires and walk through those challenges uh, and be prepared uh, to be walking as a person of integrity. So, um, 2 Timothy talks about, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself or herself from what is dishonorable, uh, he or she will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as wholly useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee youthful passions. So, flee those temptations with those right so so it's talking about doing it in community right which is friends along the journey right along with those who call on the lord for a pure heart so having accountability having friends who care more about you and your soul and your future marriage um and your career or no who care more about you and your soul and your marriage and about your family and all these things than they ever do about any political or financial success you might ever attain right having a friend who loves you enough to tell you hard things to question your motives, you know, to you, to make sure that you're on the straight and narrow to do these things, right? So um, this is one of the reasons uh, that we started Forge was that so that this type of friendship that Justin and I had when we kind of entered political life together with this kind of pact between ourselves of that we would, you know, care more about the other person than any success, we would be unimpressed, right? Everybody has a best friend who's totally for you. They would do anything. They're your biggest champion. And they're your biggest champion and totally unimpressed by you all at the same time, right? No, it's the, it's the beauties of friendship, right? In the, in the, in the Bible, uh, Philip tells Nathaniel he's found the Messiah. And Nathaniel says, you found the Messiah? And it's like every, every friend can relate to that. Like, okay, okay, you found him. Yes, my, you know, goofy best friend. Yeah, okay, right. No, but this is great. Like, just like, you know, that's not the main part of the passage. But I always love that part because it just you can just relate to your friend. Be like, wait a second. We've been looking at this for this guy for decades and millennia. I mean, you found him? Yeah, right. Um, anyway, the last point is that those friends along the journey are very important. 
Um, but the next, the next thing, and the, the essential complement to that is a mentor or multiple mentors, right? Because um, it's not only important to have people walking through the fires with you, but it's important to have people who have gone through those fires ahead of time and come out um, the better for it, right? Or have been proven uh, ahead of time, right? So there is a common thread among successful leaders in business and law and politics um, uh, in any vocation is that they should always be growing and learning. And secondly, that they should surround themselves with trusted friends to keep them accountable. They realize that they need mentors, that there are wise and experienced people, and that there is wisdom in experience. Right? So in Christianity, we term this discipleship. We call this discipleship, which is really just a, a Christian version um, of, 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 of you know, intentional mentorship right? for a specific purpose. This is really friendship with a vision. If you want to take, if you want to, discipleship sounds like a big kind of Christianese term, but you just could kind of, kind of turn, turn it into uh, friendship with a vision, right? It's friendship with, a, with an overarching uh, purpose and direction. Um, and in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, it's a lot of twos, um, it's kind of the essential passage about discipleship. It says, what you have heard, this is Paul writing to Timothy, right, who he's mentored, who's discipled in, in Christian parlance, and he said, what you have heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Well, you've heard from me in the presence of uh, many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there's Paul, then there's Timothy, then there's the faithful men he tells to trust to, and then the others they will also entrust to. There's four generations, four, four represented uh, right there in that. So this is a generational thing that leads us to think that we should always, in, in secular wisdom and biblical wisdom, all the above, says that mentorship is something that you should always be being mentored and mentoring someone. That you're never so you know, green as not being able to mentor someone else who's, who's looking to kind of follow your path or that you've ever reached this mountaintop of knowledge to where you can't be mentored or shouldn't be mentored by someone. So obviously Forge is gonna help you with this and we're gonna help you with this very soon after uh, 201 with your mentor placement. Um, but I want to just tell you in general uh, that friendship with a vision is something to seek after. Mentorship is something to seek after. And, and, and sometimes it might seem intimidating or daunting. Um, but for qualifications, you're just looking towards somebody you admire. It's someone in your life or church uh, or, or uh, you know, local political party, whoever, who you, um, whose character, you know, is there somebody whose character, whose marriage, whose career, whose parenting you admire? Right, it could be any of those things. Who's golf swing you admire? You have to pay me for those lessons, but it, no, I'm joking. Um, looking at, you look at their professional and personal reputation, right? Are they respected in their community for their integrity, for their skill, for their character, for their humility? Do you aspire to have a similar witness or a similar impact, right? Look at their marriage or their family dynamic. Do they make you think, wow, I wanna really love my spouse or you know, parent my children the way they do, right? There's people in your life you're thinking of as I'm talking about this. And most of those people would be incredibly honored by you asking them to mentor you, right? What's the worst you're gonna say? No, I'm too busy, but I mean, look, if you ask somebody to mentor you, they're gonna be honored that some, a young person thinks of them as worthy of mentoring. They're gonna be blown away by that, even if it's not the right time or in the season. Or they say, okay, yeah, well, what? I don't know what that would look like though. And what if we got, you know, breakfast every, you know, once, once, you know, once a month on the first Wednesday of every month or something. Can we do that? I could buy you breakfast or we could just, I could just ask you questions and stuff, you know. A lot of times they're gonna say yes. 
right? Um, and we're going to help you set up mentorships in Forge, but this is just general advice that you should uh, aspire to. Now, so I'm going to wrap up by going back to Wilberforce because this mentorship in Wilberforce's life, that's what I've told you about with John Newton, um, is, is pivotal, and it's really pivotal in history. So one author, one biographer writes, without William Wilberforce, there would, be, there would have been no successful campaign in the 18th and early 19th century for the abolition of the slave trade in England. But without John Newton, William Wilberforce would not have been engaged in such a role. For it was Newton who in 1785 persuaded the young member of parliament not to give up his career in politics in order to enter the ministry. It was Newton whose experiences as a former slave ship captain provided Wilberforce with the authentic information he used to such devastating effect in attacking the horrors of the slave trade. Above all, it was the bonding with Newton that gave Wilberforce that powerful combination of political motivation driven by Christian conviction that inspired his abolitionist campaign and enabled him to persevere through many years and decades of defeats and disappointments. Guys, Wilberforce one time had the votes. This had took like 20 or 30 years. <clears throat> He, he died because of the stomach or the complications with the ulcers that he developed because of the stress of this. He literally sacrificed his health for, for this fight. But one year, he had the votes, and he'd done, you know, this is decades into this. He had the votes, and seven of the key votes, I think, uh, left and did not vote because they got free tickets to the horse races that night. Can you imagine coming back from that? So, okay. This perseverance that they, they say, you know, in part is credited to this, this relationship, this friendship with Wilberforce. It says, against that background of that mentorship, it is clear that the relationship between Newton and Wilberforce was of pivotal importance for history and for spiritual reasons. Yet, um, John Newton's contribution to the life of Wilberforce as a mentor, confidant, co-campaigner, and close friend should never be underestimated. So, those principles of knowing what you believe knowing that you should engage, that you can engage in good conscience and in, you know, with your faith, that you can engage, why you should engage, right? loving your neighbor, knowing what you believe and how to articulate it, knowing your creed and how to articulate it well and graciously, pursuing truth over and above your pursuit of victory, political victory, momentary victories, as well as then being able to confront and, 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 and flee temptation in the context of strong friendship and accountability um, and as you pursue mentors um, in different aspects of your career and in your personal life. So these are things that are, those are principles that are gonna leave you well equipped um, and ready uh, to contend for what is true and good. Thank you for listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast. If you like the show, drop a review in your podcast app and be sure to subscribe for all the latest updates. You can follow Forge Leadership Network at Forge Leadership on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more information about Forge programming, visit forgeleadership.org.